This is the Rebel Matters Podcast, episode 30. If you've been here before, then you know what the crack is. And if you haven't been here before, then my name is Anne O'Carolan, and I am your host for this show, this episode, and just about every other episode. So come on in, stay for a cup of tea, get the feet up, and have a listen to the chats that we have today. Today's episode is a very special one for me because I got to sit down with my long-term Cara, Joe McGinley, who is the lead uh, strength and conditioning coach for the Leinster Rugby Academy up in Dublin at the minute. And really, this episode is kind of as close as you'll get to just listening in on a conversation with two friends who haven't caught up in a long time. It's been a year or two since myself and Joe sat down to have the chats and the chats are always good because we both love coaching and we're both very passionate about some of the same same, same things and we rattled out a lovely wee episode, if I may say so myself. We talked about whether or not it was a healthy thing to be an athlete. We talked about coaching mastery and developing a coaching philosophy, creativity in coaching, creating a productive and nurturing environment to work in and training for players and athletes. And the concept of being in service to the people that we're coaching or facilitating, which is something that we both have adopted as a mainstay of our coaching philosophies. So that was really interesting to kind of shoot the breeze about that. This week has been a pretty mental week for me. I was over in Oxford on Tuesday and Wednesday. This is Thursday. Now, as I'm recording this here, and I'm over halfway through a mindfulness based cognitive therapy course that I'm doing in Oxford University. And really, this week for me was a massive breakthrough. There was a flipping disaster trying to get over there in the first place. I forgot my do the online check-in with uh, Rainer and it charged me 55 quid at the airport to check in, which seemed a little bit steep. If you're out there, Mr. Rainer, flipping, listen up and stop flipping, trying to stroke people all the time. Anyway, I got over there and it was good, except when I was going on the way to the course on Wednesday morning, woke up nice and early to get there and Google Maps sent me straight into a big waterlogged field with my flipping favourite runners on. So I had to use all the mindfulness that I had to get myself out the other side of that there. But one of the main themes of the course day that I did yesterday was dealing with difficult thoughts. And the course facilitator read out this poem by Rumi, and I think it was one of the breakthrough moments for me in the whole course so far. So I'm going to read it to you and um, share it with you and see what you think about it. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who valiantly sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And... We were after doing a bit of meditation before we did this, so I kind of had a big clear mind. And then afterwards, I was like, whoa, I was like, this is class. This is like, basically for me, it kind of represents dealing with the, the negative emotions and being open to them and then being able to process them so that they don't cause a buildup of tension or stress and sort of like damage the mental or physical health. And when I was sitting there after this poem, I kind of envisaged myself as a house and me putting a turnstile where the door should be and just letting letting the negative emotions come in through the turnstile one by one, having a wee chat with them, dealing them, dealing with them and then sending them back out the turnstile and just keeping them kind of on a rotation like that, which is kind of what the meditation practice has been doing for me. The morning meditation practice that I've 
been um, trying to get into on a, on a consistent basis and the little three minute breath meditations that I do during the day now which have been very helpful it's kind of just a way of not letting all the negative emotions build up so it, to go back to the house analogy it's like having the return style dealing with them one by one instead of waking up in the morning opening the door and having 50 or 60 massive cunts outside your front door so that was good that's what the course is doing for me and that's what I was uh, up to yesterday I was over in Oxford and making my way over and back and I'm actually really glad to be doing this podcast now it's kind of like a grounding experience just to come in Thursday morning go through the the chat that I'd recorded with someone previously and just listen back to it and make sure that we weren't saying anything too daft and then uh, doing a little bit of an intro and filling us in on what's been going on so check out the uh Check out the website for the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. It's uh, oxfordmindfulness.org and you can see a little bit more about what the MBCT uh, course is about and there are also some guided meditations on that website and also through uh, YouTube that you can go and see and uh, some of the stuff is free. So do a little bit of meditation if you fancy it. Uh, I've been Once, it was very tough for me to do at the beginning, but once I sort of kept with it consistently and the more I delved in and the more sense I could see in it, then the more I was willing to do it and the easier it was to, to keep it going. So, uh, yeah, go and check that out. For me now, the podcast is well on the road. It's hard to believe that there's 30 episodes after being recorded give or take 30 guests that I've sat down that I've sat down with and had really interesting chats and conversations with and just looking at the stats there we've uh, got a couple of uh, far-flung um, listeners we've got one listener in Taiwan 12 in India where else have we got three listeners in Bulgaria and four in Estonia what about just lads we shout out to you podcast. And as I was saying before in previous episodes about getting in touch and stuff like that there and let me know what you think about the podcast and also leaving a wee rating and review on iTunes. So people have been doing that and John O'Reardan sent me a message asking if it would be possible to get a podcast episode where we flip the charts and someone interviews me, which was a, a nice message to receive that uh, someone out there would think that I would be interested enough to do a podcast with so um, I hopefully will be able to sort that out and get someone to turn the microphone around and do a little chat with me about about what's been going on but there is episode 26 of the podcast which is a conversation that I had with Orla Peach who was asking me some questions about my time in Palestine last year so I guess that would be a good starting point if you want to hear me talking on a little bit on a podcast episode then that would be a good place to go um, so the listeners are coming up it is a really really nice experience to know that people are out there listening and as I've said many times my favourite thing about the podcast here is meeting the people who I'm talking to but I also love to know that you guys are enjoying the podcast as well so keep her tuned and keep sharing it around with your mates and all out there we've got some class episodes uh, got class um events coming up at Ackley on the 23rd of February we've got the Lone Moor in Ackley which is a long table lunch event where we put a really long table down the middle of the gym and people bring food and share it simple as that it's a free event everyone's welcome so if you're in and around Cork come down to that there bring your mates and bring some grub and we'll just uh share food and have the chats like the good old days and then on the 28th is the next the 28th of February is the next book club meeting that we have in Ackley which we have relaunched this year so we've got a wee library in the back of Ackley and if you're a member of the book club which you can be for free and you don't have to be trained in Ackley either come down on the 28th 
and you can borrow books, meet other people who are in the book club, take a book away with you, read it. It doesn't have to be all the same book that all the rest of us are reading. Just take one away that suits where you're at at the minute with your with your mindset and the things that you want to be learning at and uh, learn about, read it and bring it back and have chats. And you can swap books as well. All good. You can bring your own books down if you want to lend them to somebody else. Also, and of course, as usual, if you're in the market for a bit of personal training, go to acli.ae, A-C-L-A-I.ae, if you're in and around the Cork area. And if you want to catch up with what we're doing and do a little bit of personal training, I think we've got something very unique going on at Ackley when it comes to the style of training that we have the combination of the coaches and the cooperation of the coaches and members working together and the community that we're building up there. So that is a nice little invitation where you can go to actly.ie and book yourself in for a complimentary consultation if you want to learn a little bit more about how we can help you with your personal training. So that is that. Now, back to the podcast with Joe McKinley. So whenever I'm thinking about training philosophy, uh, people that have impacted my my coaching career so far and my coaching philosophy and the way that I approach my own training. I think about some of the, the, the brilliant coaches that I've worked with and that have befriended over the years and Joe certainly is one of those people and another person who massively impacted the way that I approach my training and my coaching is the great and late Mick Ironman Murphy, who I met when I moved down to Cork, first of all, back in 2010. I was browsing something on the internet and read about this guy who'd won the 1958 Ross Moore all around Ireland, was a weightlifter, was a, a wrestler, a boxer. He ran away with the circus when he was 14. He was winning races left, right and centre. And his story is just absolutely unbelievable. The way I was reading it, I was like, I have to go and meet this man. And there is a Rebel Matters episode that I uh, uh, put together with some of the recordings that I took of Mick Murphy because when I read that, I went on the hunt to try and find him and eventually tracked his house down on the side of a hill in Carze- uh, just outside of Carzevine and you wouldn't have known that anybody was living there. That was back in 2010 and over the years, up until he passed away a few years ago, I was meeting up with him on a regular basis and going down and recording, recording his stories and spending a bit of time with him and we just used to have kind of like general crack and that episode is on episode 16. But one day... I went down there and I was chatting away to him. And actually, the very first day that I was I was down there, I was just about to leave because it was so cold. I was after cycling up there. There was a breeze cutting through the house. I was in my cycling gear and it was getting pitch black and I had to cycle 30 miles back to my car, which it was parked on the side of the road. So I was just about to leave and I had a little notebook and asked him to write something down. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, anything, just write. Do you have any favourite quotes or something? Or just stick something in that book just so... Just something to write down. And he wrote, a man is how he trains. And so that really had a big impact on me. That was, I was like, he's right. He's like, it's kind of a represent, uh, another way of saying how you do anything is how you do everything. And uh, I think that is true. Like how you, how you perform is based on how you train. And I carried that with me. And another day when I was down there, there's a poem that was written about Mick called Ras Limney. And I asked him to read it and I recorded it, recorded him reading it. The video is up on YouTube. If you just put in Ross Limney, Mick the Iron Man Murphy, it'll come up. But before I get stuck into the chat with Joe and the main part of the episode, I want to, to play that, um, that poem for you, uh, read by Mick Murphy. So have a listen to it. And then after that, we'll, we'll get stuck into the episode with Joe. So here we go. Mick the Iron Man Murphy, reading the poem that was written about himself and other people who were in Ras Limney, but he won Ras Limney, as you'll hear from the poem, reading the poem, Ras Limney. Have you heard As You Wander by Valley or Glen? 
the deeds of our athletic bike riding men. Our bike men are idling their gears and their hubs, are eager to ride for the fame of their clubs. Our free men are, tra are trained for the sweat and the tears, the grueling of timing and changing of gears. It's grand to be young and it's grand to be free and grand to be riding in Ross The flag had been dropped and the boys are away. 110 is the mileage today. Some 30 have started a grand sight to see all worthy contesters for Ross The Road Club of Limerick have planned their out well. John Guerin has come all the way from Clanmel. His clubmates, the Kylies, have training to spare. Brian Kelly has captured the prime at Adair. Good luck to the riders from Carrick and Sewell. Tom Freeland and Wall are the men to endure. And out with the leader, leaders is but at its best to capture the limelight at Newcastle West. The men from the kingdom are peddling with power. The heroes of Wexford are under the hour. This hard-riding bunch are now proving their class. McMurphy has broken at Glen Williams Cross. At Elton, McMurphy is hard-pressed by wall. Jim Mangan of Limerick is chasing them all. McDonough, the novice I'm hoping to see, Good luck to the riders in Ross Lemony. At Herbertstown, Crosby is well to the fore. Henderson rides now as he never rode before. The crowds cheer them on and the boys do their stuff. Make Murphy is flying through the village of Bluff. The rest of the story is easy to tell. Make Murphy rode solo beyond Parkness well. Of all the great riders, none greater than he, the mighty Mick Murphy from Carasivine, the mighty Mick Murphy won Ross Lemony. Every time I hear that poem, it makes me a little bit emotional because I'm just thinking back of all the time that I spent with Mick and the friendship that we had built up over the years and they just don't make them like that anymore. That poem was written by... Uh, Jackie Hartnett and as I was saying earlier on you can check out the video that I recorded of Mick reading the poem down in his house on the side of a hill in Carsevine. If you just put in Mick Murphy reciting the poem Raslim Knee into the YouTube search bar you can see it. So let's get stuck into the episode here with Joe McGinley lads. Episode 30 of the Rebel Matters podcast. Joe McGinley here we go. This podcast could go on for a long time. Yeah. If people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sit back. Yeah. Cancel, cancel all your appointments yeah, <laughs> for exactly. the next day. Uh, so at the minute, Joe, you're the, you're the lead SNC for Leinster Rugby. 
for the academy. Correct. So yeah. tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days and how you got there. Yeah, I suppose my SNC journey, I suppose, started back in college, like most people. I did a degree in sports science in the University of Limerick, um, where I met yourself. I was in your brother's class, Carper's class. Hello, Carper. Um, and uh, from that then, I suppose I got working in, in rugby, but I was always working through sport, like sport. Coaching was always something I was involved in from a young age anyway, um, I competed in athletics for years myself and I suppose that's where I got a, a good graph for coaching. Um, I had some very good coaches down through the years um, that in, would have inspired me to to, to be a coach. Um, so I did athletics for years um, and I played rugby, which is, uh, I suppose, unusual enough in Donegal back then. And anyway, I suppose there was only two, three of us from my town that would have played rugby. And so we would have gone to a different town to play rugby. Um, and then, so, took that to college anyway, and uh, didn't really play at a high level or anything like that in college. I didn't play any any rugby, actually, in college. Um, I took up kayaking and outdoor sports. And then, um, uh, after my degree then, I um, during my degree, I interned with Connick Rugby in 2009 under coach Kevin Craddock, who was, uh, I suppose, a big mentor to myself. And... Uh, from there, I came back to UL and got involved in coaching with the, the Munster Rugby age grade um, players and systems. And from that then, I went, I suppose, I worked through the whole long-term athlete development pathway from under 15s, 16s, right up to under 18s, 20s, Senior Academy Munster, and now Senior Academy in Leinster. And I suppose that's what got me to here. And then one of the things that I think I'm really interested in talking about today is something that probably stems back from the many conversations that we had together when we were living together in Cork. I don't know, it was about 2011 or something when you moved yeah, to Cork so first? 2000, yeah, it was late 2010, maybe early 2011, yeah. There were a lot of late night conversations about general health. And yeah. at the time, we were both working with with athletes mostly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that um, is an important aspect of, of being an athlete. And one of the questions that I had in my head was is it actually a healthy thing to be an athlete? I know that's something that, that you do a lot of work around as well. And I would see that if I was to look at the work that you do, I would say that the some, that promoting and helping players become healthy for the long run is something that you would see as mutually beneficial for their performance uh, in the execution of their duties as professional mm-hmm. rugby players. Yeah. So um, is that something that, that is sort of a factor in your day-to-day job at the minute? Um, I suppose, yeah, subconsciously it is. Um, I suppose that, yeah, is being an athlete healthy? I suppose there's a lot of of research, I suppose, going into that now too in in terms of athlete health and well-being and uh, whether or not, um, you know, athletes through sport are subject to depression or to psychological disorders and some people think you know athletes are immune to to these sort of conditions because you know they're athletes they're famous they're on telly but I suppose that's that's not the case um so it is something I think we have to be conscious of um at the end of the day they're just people you know so we have to we have to respect that first and foremost and everyone has got a basic psychological need to be happy in in what they do whether that's their job career and looking after their family or rearing a family or whatever it may be um, everyone has that basic need to be to be happy so um, 
we have to be conscious of that you know uh, athletes are, are no different than someone else going to do a different job you know so there are certain vulnerabilities that come with being an athlete for example like obviously the heavy training load that they're going through the fact that they have to show up and play in front of first of all play a very physical game if it's rugby or do a very physical sort of pursuit if you're doing something else like triathlon or cycling and you're racing on a regular basis that's very physically demanding mm. there's the pressure that comes with being a professional athlete and having to perform there's the fact that you're at the sort of uh, at the whim of the supporters in a lot of ways if you do something wrong so what, what other aspects are there, are there? Like, I suppose I mean, uh, yeah like you could just look at it at four or five different levels you I suppose what is happiness what is well-being it's physical it's mental it's moral it's spiritual um, you know so first and foremost you know we would like I think a lot of us get caught up in, in the research or a lot, you know the programming for the physical aspect of, of health and I suppose that's that's for a professional coach that's probably the easy one you know or maybe the one we spend too much time um, focusing on um, and like we just got to I suppose remember that uh, when we're programming a player that we're you know catering for the long-term health and well-being of this athlete and and what we're asking them to do and make sure that your your club or your your association your philosophy you know abide by a good model of long-term athlete development you know so that we're teaching fundamental movements first and foremost we're teaching you know uh, a physical competency in everything that we're asking them to do um, how well they move before how much they they lift and etc you know so make sure first and foremost we have a, a long-term development pathway in 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 place in, in your club or in your association from correct principles of training for a young athlete through their peak height velocity into their adolescent years into their 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 main playing years and into retirement i suppose retention like the danger of not having that stuff set up seems to be dangerous like it seems to be very big like say for example i'm thinking if someone hasn't come through that path or they're they're overloading the body or they're um they're at a greater risk of injury or i think the big thing that's sticking out for me in my head is if someone has got their whole identity built around being a player or an athlete of some kind and then all of a sudden they go out and they break their leg Mm. finished then that from a mental point of view there's something there that um I think it's probably topical these days because of the fact that we have so many health, mental health problems in Ireland. Mm. But building your identity on something that's so sort of breakable is probably a challenge as well. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine it is. Like I suppose you touched on two things. There is first of all is the you know the the uh, the identity of the athlete. You know, and how strong is that, or how 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 much has that evolved around their sport the other thing you mentioned there was the um you know the, the adequate loading or the you know the you know this physical stress we put on the on the athletes so first and foremost you know the athlete identity you know i don't know how much of that we can influence um or how much we should influence like that that's it's quite a big topic you know i suppose all we can do is you know is in our coaching philosophy is that you know get to know your player rather than just getting to know the athlete and I think from 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 I see my responsibility on a day to day is having a key in, a keen interest in in who this player is, what his family, what his background, etc. Things like that, so that I'm not building my relationship on his identity as an athlete. I'm building a, my relationship with him as 
you know, identifying to him or her as a person, first and foremost. I suppose that's, that's, that's where I'd go on that. Secondly, then, is from an athletic perspective, you know, I got to sometimes take off my strength and conditioning coach hat and make sure that what is important for this player to do, this player has a job to do on the pitch or on the track or whatever it is, then I don't need to go and blow my ego every day by, you know, expecting this player to do the S&C fundamentals or the conditioning fundamentals to a really high level. I just need to do it to a level where I can get, or the rugby coach or the whatever coach I'm working with can get exactly what they want out of this athlete, you know? So I suppose that's two parts there is know the demands of the sport, know the demands of the coach, what he wants or she wants, and then secondly is know the person within the athlete you're dealing with. There's two things that kind of strike me when we were talking about. One is the fact that you're talking about getting to know the person outside of their identity as an athlete. Uh, that's probably something that I would say that for me, if I was to, to kind of like look at that from the outside, I would say that that's a very high level of coaching, sort of like a very high level of mastery within coaching. I'd say that the first level of coaching would be getting to know the basics of how to train people, how to bring people through an x-ray, how to fit into the rest of the backroom team. I think, uh, I think it's a high level if you don't have it. If it doesn't come naturally, I think you know there are certain types of people. Um, you know, people have a, have their own baseline psychological traits. Like my background before I got into coaching was, uh, I was going to be a primary school teacher, and I didn't get the didn't get the points to go to study primary school teaching. So I suppose that's what would have drawn me to to coaching was just that sort of thing, getting on, you know, coaching young people or. or you know, working with young people, I suppose I had a natural attraction to that. So for someone else then who might be a little bit more, um, you know, data driven or, you know, ego driven or whatever it is, it is, it is going to be a high level for them to get to that where, you know, they look at the person first, um, you know, and, and, and I have to sympathize with, with coaches coming into sport that, you know, they need to, I suppose, you know, it depends on the association they walk into, but they might walk into an association where it may be very data-driven. You know, it may be very, you know, your line manager might not be very sympathetic towards his athletes. He might just be looking for data. He might be looking for figures. He might be looking for testing scores. Coaches might have a philosophy that's, you know, geared towards that, you know, an output focus. Um, so, like, you know, like, it can be difficult for a coach to be very comfortable in their own skin, trust their program enough to put a lot of time and focus into that 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 mm. aspect of mastery you're talking about you know and I suppose it's I've been coaching now I suppose 10 years so it's kind of a case that it I'm comfortable enough with my program design and trust my program design enough you know that I can focus a little bit more on the athlete than the program yeah. you know and I suppose you're right there is, there is an element of mastery to that there, well actually talking on the mastery if you're We've been coaching for ten years. You've definitely clocked up well more than the ten thousand hours rule. So we're talking to a flipping master coach here, no doubt. Actually, one of the things that struck me there. So a few years ago, Sean O'Halpin had an article in the paper, and one of the things that he said he was talking from a personal perspective, but I think it applies to coaching as well. Is that the like for human beings, the the main needs are to be loved and to love, mm-hmm. and I think that. I can relate to that from a coaching perspective because I can see, first of all, of all the coaches that we've had working in Ackley over the years, I would think the best ones are people who have had uh, experience in customer-facing businesses, like working yeah. in, uh, as servers in a restaurant or working in a, in, a, in a retail outlet or working in a shop or something because of the fact they've had that communication yeah. ability. to, yeah. And that, for me, especially at the start, surpasses 
actually surpasses technical knowledge yeah. because they're building relationships with people. Yeah. And the other thing that you mentioned there was, uh, mentioned it twice, I think, uh, was the, the, the importance of the absence of bringing your ego to the table mm-hmm. in coaching and building relationships as well, which I guess that kind of comes down to, like very much comes down to the personality or your how comfortable you are with, with what you're trying to do, the job that you're trying to do, so you're, yeah. you're getting secure in the, in the yeah. job you're doing. Yeah, so I suppose to break up what you were thinking, what you're talking about there, you spoke about Sean said people have a need to be loved, uh, to love and be loved. Like I, I would 100% agree with that, and I suppose that comes down to first and foremost your the culture you have in your in the environment you work in is going to set that for you. You know, so I would agree with that, and I would also add maybe just safety, whether it's a psychological safety, physical safety. You know, yeah, it's need to have a level of a trust with the coaches they're working around. Um, in order to get most out of their program you know so I think that comes first and foremost you know is then you have to have a set culture a set behaviour so if you're kind of like we can all we all have examples of teachers that we used to like or didn't like when we were kids and we might have had some very cranky crabbit teachers but we actually liked them because they were always cranky and they were always crabbit and they got results whereas it's a teacher that would maybe chew the head of you one day and then be very nice to you another day that you didn't like you know so if you have that mixture where an athlete doesn't feel maybe safe or secure from that perspective in your environment then I think your culture is wrong or you need to work on on the on the coaching culture that you have the other thing you mentioned was um I'm trying to think now what did you mention after that I was going to say about bringing ego to the table yeah I suppose like SNCs especially sometimes forget that you're second fiddle. You're sec- in, in, in a team environment, you know, you're, you're, you're way down the pecking order. Um, um, and you see a lot of these, I suppose, NFL type videos with, you know, real egotistic coaching styles that, you know, seem a lot of roaring, a lot of shouting. It's just like, what's motivating the athlete there? You'd have to question, you know. Yeah, it's a it, macho environment, kind of. They're creating a kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's right either. I think there's a time and a place where you might need to periodize that sort of behavior when, you know, as a coach you might need to periodize that behavior but like nine sevens out of ten like the last thing on a on a professional sporting schedules week is a captain's run and it's called a captain's run because you want your captain and your team to to take over the reins and drive that team on into a game into that fixture at the weekend so i think we have to be in a position that our athletes can survive quite well here without us you know and that's the sort of environment you want to create any manager or any leader that's the environment he wants to create um is that can can these people look after themselves or you know uh, fend for themselves so i suppose like we got to remember that we're there to assist the team or assist the coach in developing a philosophy and culture that they want uh, in terms of performance mm. like, there's something there I think that um, yes coaching can seem to be like sort of a macho environment that what you mentioned there about people bringing their egos to the table and trying to make themselves feel great by, by basically screaming at players but I'd say there, as you said there, there's probably a time and a place where the energy levels can be raised and you can put more pressure on people physically and stuff like that but that, that's kind of like probably a finite resource Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, it is. And sometimes it, it depends on the athletes you're working with too, you know. like It depends on what leadership role you might have to take with a, a particular athlete on a given day or in a given situation. You know, so you might have a, a group of players that, you know, you might need to be the father figure for, for a day. You might need to be the pal for the day. Or sometimes you just need to be stern, you know, and say, like, this is what you're doing or this is not what you're doing. And there is a time and a place for that. But that's, that's again, that's that's like... 
you know that's something that you have to have in your arsenal as well. Yes, but you then you, I guess there you have to have built up the trust as well to be able to do that. Yeah, as opposed to coming into some someone you've never met before and then blasting the head off them. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be like, "Who is this guy?" Yeah. 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 But yeah. actually, something interesting, Joe. That okay. So the thing about the ego and the, the way you said that the, the coaches the plays is second fiddle and is like say, down the lane in the pecking order. All um, like I would see I would see coaching personally as a sort of a position of service that mm. you're there kind of like like a butler or something in a house yeah. or, a, or a waiter or yeah. like someone who's out to collect in your bin that you're providing a service and you're doing it yeah. in a way I, that I, I've described it to the players and even in, in interviews or job interviews myself it's described it as a Sherpa you know and, and, and technically that's what the role you need to be so if someone is climbing with say Everest or whatever you know they can't do it on their own. It's a massive feat what they're trying to achieve, and so is making it to the top level of any sport. But at the end of the day, you are a Sherpa, you know, and you're there to guide and steer direction and offer support. And more so anything, it's support. It's not, you know, it's not anything more than that or anything of a higher, higher ego level than supportive, you know. And you're, you're looking to offer, you know, a number of things, support being the primary one, in my opinion, and then um, guidance. Um, and at during maybe more difficult periods in the athlete's career, it's 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 out and out leadership or out and out reassurance. You know, you might be offering, but yeah, very much that Butler Sherpa role is is where I be coming from in my philosophy. From a strength and conditioning coach's point of view, it's a very unique role because of all the backroom team, you're probably the the only person who's going to be with the player for a prolonged period of time during times when they're physically able and they're in good form during times when they're injured mm. and you're doing rehab with them yeah. and the, you get the whole spectrum and yeah. I would say probably like from my experience like and, and just looking at the, the other roles within the team I'd say I feel like I, I, I was in the prime position to build up really good relationships yeah. with players because of the amount of time I was spending with them through the whole emotional spectrum yeah yeah um, yeah it, it is and but like you know, it doesn't. It might not necessarily be you either. Like, and it, it might never be you. And I suppose you've got to be conscious as a coach that you can't force that. They might just have a better relationship with the kit man, mm. the masseuse, you know, the physio, the doctor. Um, and you might, you might be in a position where you know, you know that, you know, you might need to contain something, you know, uh, a situation, or you might need to, you know. Uh, outsource that situation and speak to someone else, or speak to someone, you know, in your backroom staff and say, I think this athlete, you know. Um, needs a little bit more support here to get on well with you and refer out to that other coach you know as in I suppose you can't um, one other coach has, has said it to me before where it's like it needs to be it needs to be a family but you don't have to be their friend you know what I mean so it needs to be that sort of like strong family environment where a coach or a player can come and tell you something but like not necessarily <laughs> if you heard that that's my dog running across the kitchen there she wants to play fetch with us now yeah she, she picks her moments uh, so I'd say um, would it be right to say that like the, the relationship between a coach and a player it's not the it's not the stereotypical drill sergeant and subject relationship that you see in your head when you think about an old school coach anymore yeah. it's not the shouting down it's more like a partnership where two people or yeah. a, 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 a team and a coach are coming together to sort of like create something um, something that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do by themselves yeah yeah it is a, it's a lovely it's a lovely teacher leadership role in, in that sense where, you know where you're you're assisting someone else you know with their goal you know and it's you know if you can't you can't drag them to that point you have to you know push them assure them 
you know support them to that to that point I don't think you know and it, it, I don't think that drill sergeant you know military style you know leadership would work you know with with, with athletes and not, not modern day athletes anyway you know what I mean because the beauty of, of working in, in with this generation of athletes is they've, they've access to a lot of other influences you know on social media or you know you know background information into other clubs or what other athletes are doing you know following them on Instagram or whatever so they have a fair idea of what looks professional and what should be professional as well you know so I suppose we're at a stage where you know they know as much as us in a lot of those areas as well or, or maybe they think they do you know and that drill sergeant mentality you know it's, it's not going to work in that situation hmm. we chatted a little bit before we started recording about the work that you did as part of your master's thesis on the best way for players to be appraised which I think ties into that thing that you're saying that, that yeah. you're kind of building a partnership and like how, how have you sort of like implemented some of that stuff with the people yeah so um, I just did a thesis recently I did a, a performance psychology master's in the University of Limerick under uh, Mark Campbell which was um, a really a really really enjoyable insight I wanted to add something else to my, to my bow rather than just sports science or strength so it was that Psychological performance is an area I'm, I'm interested in, and my thesis, what I, I wanted to do was look at the best way of appraising athletes. Um, so what's, what's from a coaching perspective, and especially working with young athletes or young elite athletes, what's the best way to appraise them? And I suppose appraisal is, is a term for reviewing an athlete or even just discussing with an athlete their targets and their goals and making sure they're on track. So it's quite a broad term. And I suppose... You know, uh, there's no perfect model, I suppose, of the best way to appraise an athlete. But you know, it's what I found through interviewing elite coaches was that it comes in, t- in two packages. It is formal; it needs to be formal. And I suppose, you know, with player contracts and everything on the line, you have to have a, a, a formal review process within your club, and that's fine. And it is good to have maybe two or three of those a year. But it's the informal appraisals of your athletes on a day-to-day basis that you know are paramount to, to athlete success and being able to keep the goal the goal when you're appraising an athlete um, and the three suppose big findings that came from it that athletes will progress well through their athletic career if you know you give them a level of autonomy in what they do competent if they feel confident in what they do and you're quite supportive in that so I suppose that's basic um, that's basic um what's the word self-determination theory it's that level of competency um, level of autonomy will lead to good motivation you know so I suppose what how do I implement that is that well first of all you have to know your player very well to understand where they get their motivation from you know so is it internal is it external is it um, is it just plain do they want to really play do they want to do they want to perform really well in the gym as well as on the pitch you know what's their aspirations and then it's once you know that person well enough and you have a good relationship, you can discuss these goals a lot better, a lot clearer. You can um, just have a better rapport with the athlete. And then once you have a good level of trust, it's about managing expectation then. So if an athlete has a really big aspiring goal of maybe playing in the next 20s World Cup or you know, play five times for Leinster this season, sometimes that might be the case and you back that you know, and you give them the assurance that you're on board with that or sometimes it might be the case that you need to describe well look this is the landscape this is what's in front of you this is what player wise are in front of you this is your athletic age you know a more realistic goal might be ABC with an aspiration for that goal next season 
suppose managing their expectation comes into it, um, but then giving them a level of autonomy um, in what you are going to do. So it's having that discussion with them of what the rest of the season should look like, what the, the plan should look like, you know, and giving them an opportunity to add, you know, their two cents into it. And now you might have to guide a lot of that. Like you might have, you might be in a situation where they're telling you that they want to get really big and strong and you're looking at them going, they're probably strong enough for their position or for their demands of the game, but they might need to focus on speed or body fat or conditioning. And it might be a case then you just need to guide that, you know. But again, if you've had a good enough relationship or you've put invested good time in knowing that player, being able to tell them that then is a very easy conversation, you know. And, you know, he recognises you as someone he trusts and recognises you as an expert in your field, then he'll take your opinion or she'll take your opinion a lot easier than someone where it's, you've just had that sort of, you know, that military sort of like, you know, a relationship, yes, no relationship with them. Like they'll, they'll not respect that to the same level. So I suppose those are my sort of key findings that, you know, off the back of a, a formal appraisal, a reviewing system that you have in your club with your other coaches, then you have very regular informal um, discussions. And that's just conversation you know but it's a it's a nice comfortable conversation because you've put time into into knowing that athlete having a good rapport with that athlete knowing their interests outside the sport etc and being able to just discuss that topic oh i seen your i watched your game the last day um you know your tackle tech is coming on really well fair play or did you see that one you missed well we might just discuss that and see how we can improve that for next week blah 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 like what you're talking about there really seems to be coming back to the coaching philosophy that you're after developing personally yourself yeah uh, something i'd say that's probably one of the most valuable things that i ever did yeah was starting to think years and years and years ago about what way i wanted to coach what the philosophy was going to be and what were going to be the core elements of that so it seems like i would say if i was going to guess now that mm. well not guess obviously because we know each other for a long time but i know that like the trust between you and who you're working with is an essential part of your coaching philosophy oh yeah definitely what else is in there um i suppose um i suppose i'd be very keen on making sure that you know they like not only they trust me but they know me as well you know so be very black and white with them or be very you know yeah black and white i suppose is, is an okay way of putting it but this they they know me quite well and they know my interests you know so that the, the trust is two ways you know what i mean um it also, like, I suppose, you know, like, what else could I add to that? I'm not really sure now, like, you know, what, it, what it, how else to but describe it? I you know, know, like, maybe it's coming a little bit off the topic, but I know that from a movement perspective, like, that's a really important part of your, your coaching as well, mm. the, 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 the movement sort of quality, and it's not just, like, in the same way that it's not screaming at them just to try and get them across the lane as a once-off. It's not just about lifting a big massive, massive weight for the once-off either. Yeah. You kind of like, I know that's kind of a part of your approach. Oh, absolutely, well. absolutely. And I suppose I'll always, I, what I, I suppose that brings me back on track. Now, what, another thing I'm a big fan of is explaining everything you do to the players. And like, don't underestimate, you know, people think that, you know, oh, I get the athlete to do this and they do it because I say to do it. But I will always try and invest um, um, knowledge into them into why we're doing this because if an athlete they may or may not want to know but if you're able to paint the picture and draw a similarity between this is what I'm after and this is why I'm after it 
then I think you'll get much greater buy-in across the board if you explain your philosophy to your athletes quite regularly. And we, we do do it quite regularly at work where we're explaining the why to the player is just as important as trying to implement the program. So if a player understands, like you know, it, like you said, it could be a movement thing. So if we're introducing back squat into a young academy athlete, we're starting with a body weight squat, we're starting with a goblet squat, and we're progressing through adequate range of movement um, addressing any imbalances along the way before we start loading and I suppose if I explain that to an athlete then from a practical term let's just say he's a prop forward the reason we're getting you to squat very well and very deep is these are the positions you're going to be in as in the front row that's the same position you would use when you're sprinting etc etc and paint that picture of why this is important you'll get greater buy-in on the long on the long run then you know by investing that knowledge and empowering them with that knowledge Joe, like listening to you talking about this stuff, listening to you talking about the, the appraisal process, how you're communicating with, with players, uh, building the culture of um, openness and, and how, how people are dealing with each other, coaches and players together and other backroom staff, and how you're taking the time to explain stuff to players, building up a trust. Like, <laughs> I know we're talking about specifically about coaching here, but this stuff can be applied across. Like it seems to be this stuff could be applied across the board in any profession. But yeah. like one thing that uh, thing strikes me is you ever hear that story about the the samurai who like threatens the guy who who makes tea? No, is like I'm gonna butcher it here. Like, but, <laughs> but basically, what happens is the some samurai comes across some tea maker, and he's like, right, we're gonna have a fight here. And we're going to fight till the death tomorrow, such and such a time. And then the samurai obviously starts shitting himself because he's going to get his head chopped off by... Or sorry, the teammaker starts shitting himself he's going to get his head chopped off by a samurai. Yeah. The teammaker goes off to some master and says, what, what am I going to do? And the master says, well, what, what do you do day-to-day life? What, what do you do? Like, he's like, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like a, a tea maker. Yeah. He's like, just go in there and make tea as best as you can. Like, really make it with everything you have. And then when they meet the next day to have the scrap, the tea maker, like whips out all his tea gear <laughs> makes tea and then the samurai sees the mastery with which he does it yeah. and then he's, he's like I'm the samurai's like I'm out of here this guy's too intense he's got like too too much of a master for me yeah. and he leaves and kind of when I'm, when I'm listening to you talking it's kind of like it's kind of like listening to what I like the tea, listening to the tea master yeah. talking where he just like has gone so deep in the knowledge of your trade that yeah. it's it's a mastery that is we're talking about it as it applies to coaching and your job, but it can apply to everything. You can bring I, that stuff. I think outside. so. Like if you replace the word athlete with employee, or I suppose, or student, and you replace the word coach with line manager or boss or whatever it is, it, it does apply across the same. I think anyone in that role of that teacher, coach, or boss position needs to first and foremost um, have a lot of self awareness before they start to try and understand. You know the person they're trying to teach or the person they're trying to work with. Like, so when you understand your behavior and the impact of your behavior on someone else, you need to understand that before you can try and change anyone else's behavior. And like, I think that's where that comes from for me. And I suppose like over the last 10 years of that coaching, you know, you do look back and I suppose it's very easy to judge yourself on the players that made it, but you know, you need to appraise yourself on the, on the athletes that you've worked with that haven't made it. And I suppose that's where you learn your lessons from that, you know, oh, he didn't make it, you know, as like, you know, why did he not make it? Ah, oh, he was just too hard to coach. He just didn't, never listened. And it's like, he didn't listen or you didn't find a way of making him listen, you know? And I suppose that's, that's where that comes from. And we, we, have to, we have to learn from our own mistakes as well. And of course, there's been plenty of them. For any coach, you know, it'd be in sheer denial if he's 
going to say that there was wasn't plenty of athletes that didn't make it that he they could have done better with you know my personal favorite thing about coaching uh, whether there be athletes or just general people who general members of the public who want to become healthier is the relationships that I end up building with them mm. because you whether you're on the coaching side or whether you're on the player or client side there's basically two strangers that don't have a relationship are coming together yeah. and then as a coach then your job is to sort of facilitate the the development of a relationship which is something kind of kind of beautiful I yeah. guess not um, in in a way because that's I guess I mean that's that, that's kind of what what life is like in a way is like you're 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 creating something that didn't exist before. Yeah. I think that I would see as a coach then that's one of the most sort of valuable jobs that we have, or say one of the greatest privileges that we have mm. as a coach. I think. Yeah, and I suppose uh, to add to that too is like in elite sport. You, you might not get that either. You know, you might be facilitating a player who's very, very driven and very focused on their own goal and they just need a little bit of an assistance. And I suppose that's okay to recognise as well that we might not have that relationship with everyone we work with and we can't beat ourselves up over that either, you know, because there'll always be situations that it just depends on the type of person they are. You know, they might be, you know, a real introverted, focused, very red personality, you know, goal-driven or ego-driven themselves, and that's fine, you know, whereas you might have other athletes that'll appreciate that relationship quite well, and mm. I suppose those are the ones you, you, you nourish as well, you know. I suppose that's that's probably a difference between, like at the minute, the way we were kind of set up professionally in two yeah. different arenas, where the yeah. people I, get, I, I meet are mostly people who are coming to me one by one. Yeah. You're, you get given a big batch of players, yeah. and then you yeah. have to kind of fit yourself around that. Yeah, and I could be a, 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 I could be a key cog in somebody's career, getting them back from an injury or setting them up. And I might be a very, very little, you know, part of someone else's career, and I suppose that's that's the way it is, you know. And I suppose that's, you know, if you're in coaching for the for the reward or. You know, appraisal from your athletes or thanks from your athletes, then you're you're in the wrong game. You know, you're you're there to facilitate their goal, and and that's the way it is. Mm. You know, I'm interested to talk a little bit about creativity in in coaching because personally, I would see that every vocation or craft is essentially a creative process, mm. and I would see that the the creative process within coaching is kind of on the top level as well it's like an art form in many ways and I think that in the way that you were talking earlier about building relationships and stuff like that there that I would see that as as kind of like a a level of a really high level of mastery when it comes to coaching I would see the creative side and the sort of art form of coaching as the top level as well yeah so how how do you how does that come into into your day-to-day kind of coaching and stuff I suppose it's it's funny because it's Again, it's just a different world that me and you are in in the minute, I suppose. From a rugby perspective, professional rugby perspective, the creative the creativeness is in the game plan, in how the coaches deliver the game plan, how the players deliver the game plan when we play. My role is very much, you know, a very standard role in terms of, you know, give the player the mental, the moral, the physical competencies to fit into that creative game plan that the coaches and the players have developed you know so there's probably if we're looking at like you know do we need to change reinvent the wheel here probably not because there's so much other learning and things that players have to you know do in in their environment then i suppose i will give them the most bang for buck 
exercise or bang for buck S&C thing that I can I mean, that's a creative thing in itself so that is yeah, that yeah. At the right, it has to be the right exercise in the yeah. right amount at the right time Exactly, exactly, and I suppose it's it's quite pragmatic too. And I suppose, I suppose oh, we, we were spoken about before we hit record here is about the um, you know we're so data driven now that we tend to miss a lot of non-verbals or we tend to miss a lot of stuff with players. That I suppose being creative or comfortable enough to recognise that there's a time to make this program way simpler, you know, and dampen it way down than it needs to be, and not be creative. For the sake, and I suppose a lot of us tend to change and chop and change a lot of our program because we get bored <laughs> more so than the athlete. You know what I mean? Whereas sometimes we forget, like what I admire with the athletes I work in is the most is their level of focus. I think is phenomenal. You know how a guy can come in, you know, start his day at medicals at seven in the morning, you know, do a gym session, go out to the pitch, do a really hard pitch session, come back and do another rehab session in the evening, and still, you know, still um, stick to you know the plan or the three sets of eight or the four sets of whatever they have to do I you know I really admire that quality in the players and I think really good athletes have that in abundance and I suppose we tend to get so creative because we're the one getting bored you know with the program and I suppose it's I suppose you you know if you know your players well enough you might be in a position to ask them or do a little litmus test litmus test on the day and see that are they getting bored and you'll soon know by their body language and their feedback and their effort in the gym or whatever you'll soon see that if that is the case you need to change then I suppose that like if you look at I mean if you look at art in general some artists are minimal and Mm. that's the beauty of what they do yeah I think that's important from a coaching perspective that you have the self-confidence to say we're not going to do the full program today or I'm not going to change the program but we're going to do these two exercises that's it yeah and that's I don't know maybe you wouldn't call it creative but it's definitely a say a mark of uh, a mark of of knowledge or knowing what you're doing and being confident with what you're bringing yeah. to the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, we're in that era now. I suppose minimalists are, are beginning to take over in every facet, you know, and it is it is a good way of phrasing it. You know, sometimes we just have to be, it's, it don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's not rocket science, you know. It's, you know, minimal, minimal, um, minimal input, maximum return, and it could be just something, something quite simple, you know. Where does nutrition fit in in your preparation of athletes, Joe? Um, I would probably like kudos to uh, nutritionists and people like that. I think it's um, it probably there's a much bigger. I think it has a bigger influence on athletes than we realise in a lot of situations. I think you know. Um, we deal with athletes, I suppose, from an S&C perspective. Uh, we manage training load. Um, and without that nutritional input and lifestyle balance that comes with that, I think we're, we're, uh, we're chasing a, a dead duck there, really, to be honest, you know, in terms of... My overall philosophy on it is quite simple. You cannot be fit unless you're healthy. Um, and there's no longevity in being fit if you're not healthy. So first and foremost, I think nutrition has a, a much higher... Uh, Authority in the athlete development pathway than than an SNC program does. Um, so, I think that I think we have to give it a lot more respect than maybe we deserve or it, the, the profession deserves. I think it's a huge aspect to athlete health, well-being, and performance. When you say that you can't be fit unless you're healthy, where does that leave us in terms of nutrition? Like, or is there a tendency to overlook? 
the big building blocks yeah. that promote health yeah. in favour of the small things that are supposedly... Yeah, the one percenters. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a couple of big rocks that, you know, when you're working with any athlete or even you're looking to, especially a younger athlete and trying to influence a younger athlete, um, you know, and they might be misinformed about what it takes to be, the sacrifices that are required to be an elite athlete, but big rocks is sleep and nutrition, first and foremost, you know. So good quality sleep, good sleep quality and hygiene and duration and a good nutritional uh, intake um, throughout the day and throughout their, their whole career I think is is that those are the two biggest rocks that we can look at. It mightn't be as applicable to say the work that you're doing at the minute in a, in a fully professional setup but yep. what do you think are the small percentages that people are really chasing and at the expense of the bigger ones? Ah, like you know people talk about recovery and you know um, different modalities of recovery whether it's ice baths it used to be ice baths I suppose it's other compression garments or whatever or supplements or anything like that but like you know the biggest you know I think value for money <coughs> recovery any athlete can get is, is a good night's sleep you know and a, and a good a good a good meal um, I think you know those are the sort of one percenters we do chase or whether it's a I don't know there's I can't think of anything offhand now what traps players fall into I know there was uh, those <laughs> those altitude masks came in a couple of years ago and things like that you know where it's yeah people are people are chasing that and I suppose that's the you know that's good marketing and that's good um, social media that you know people are you know getting brand ambassadors to endorse products and things like that whereas yeah the, the most obvious one is right in front of us and you know it might have just been your mother's advice to get a good night's sleep and a good dinner and it might have been just the best one going you know it's mentioned a couple of really important things there first of all a lot of parents come in the in the our gym and sit and ask me should my kid be taking protein supplements yeah yeah that's, I say that's a big one and the thing that you mentioned earlier about the marketing i mean personally uh speaking i think that the marketing and the advertising is a massive player here that mm people need to be aware of that i'd say like i mean there's nothing better in my opinion than us two sitting here and you're talking about getting a good sleep eating a proper meal yeah which consists of like whatever meat and vegetables and the stuff that you you have at home yeah over the protein supplements because that that narrative isn't really being that's not that narrative's not there no it's not i suppose it's too easy a script or it's too familiar a script to sell well you know what i mean as well so and there's probably you know who who's going to benefit from good marketing around sleep and you know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, a good home, home cooked dinner like you know a supplement company or a you know a, you know a, a sports company is not going to benefit from by saying here uh, just go home and sleep and eat well you know so i suppose there's no benefit to that being marketed and I suppose that message probably just needs to come from from us, people like us that are working with our clients or working with our athletes. I suppose we're the people that have to to advertise that, you know. Yeah. So so let's let's do it then. Let's recap a little bit on some of the big rocks together. Like so, yeah. I, I would say you said it's sleep. Like yeah. what's the what's the guideline on sleep? Like I suppose like what I'd be encouraging with my athletes is you know have a good schedule. Like have you know know what your schedule looks like. You know so it's you know it, you're getting a good eight to ten hours sleep. Now ten hours is tough. Like that's you know like that is the deluxe model. So let's face it. Like you know it's it's difficult in this day and age, especially if you have a dual athlete who's maybe a student or a career as well. Then that might not necessarily be the case. But you know. Getting to bed at a regular time and having a good routine is, is going to be essential to just having, like any training routine or, you know, your routine in your gym session, uh, you know, your life routine needs to be as balanced as your as your gym routine. So just establishing a good routine and putting an emphasis on that then 
in your in your own coaching philosophy so is that a question is that a subjective marker that you have when you're when you're speaking to your athletes the next morning is like do you get a good night's sleep how's the body and a simple conversation to see well how you know is that something that they've done well and just put a bit of focus on that yourself that's the big one for me and then the nutrition one as well is a great way to get you know to know your athlete is just by talking them around that kind of thing so if you have an early gym session with a client or an athlete you're asking them what do you have for breakfast um, or what's the plan for lunch and you get a good insight into what their life looks like outside of the outside of your world or your relationship with them you know and if breakfast sounds like a, a dodgy story <laughs> or a, you know a, a non-existent event then then that's a big rock for you to chase and tidy up because you could train an athlete two times a day or two times a you know two times a week, and he'll eat the wrong food eight times a day. Then, you know, you're pissing into the wind there, really. The thing about the sleep as well, like you said, ten hours is the deluxe model. But mm. I think a big thing that I find myself emphasizing a lot of the time is even if you're not getting, even if we're getting five hours sleep, yeah. the important thing is to make those sleep hours as quality as possible. Yeah. So, like say things like blackout blinds, yeah, yeah, sunrise alarm clocks, yeah. not going on your phone at night. Exactly, exactly. Getting getting rid of the blue light out of your out of your life um, a little bit earlier in the day off 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 your phone, off your laptop, off your screen. You know, so that you have. Your brain has a bit of time to just uh, relax and unwind. Um, you know, a dark room, like you said, um, well ventilated. You know, so it's, it's slightly cool. It's not it's not overly warm. And those are good practices. And you've here are teams that, you know, that do a lot of maybe international travel and things like that, where athletes um, would just bring their own pillow with them. You know, because it's uh, you know it's a it's an aspect of the routine then that's kept consistent. You know, because even just you know yourself if you're between hotels and things like that, it's different bed, different different shape room, different noises, stimuluses. You know, it, it could have an effect. You know, but even just getting the basics of having a routine at night. You know, where you know you've done maybe a lot of your cooking um, on a Sunday, and you know, and encourage that batch cooking so that a player is not maybe you know coming home from club training at you know at, at quarter past half past nine, and then has no preparation done for the next day. That's a big you know? one for, for I will say cook once a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we would even here like in my own home situation, we'd try and myself and I would try and you know do our bulk cooking on a Sunday. You know, so whether it's one dish in a slow cooker, one dish in the wok. Um, so sort of two wet dishes as go to then for lunch, so that we're never stuck when we get up in the morning. That you know we can cook something like a steak, a burger, or a fish, or that in the evening, but we're never stuck for lunch then the next day. Water would be another big block for me. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, simple. Like it, it, it's, it's such common sense, but like we've nearly gone beyond common sense that the pendulum is going to have to swing back at some stage, you know, and readjust readjust the basics of like fluid and thick. You we're know, starting and, again. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you have to just go back to the basics, whereas, like, again, it's probably down to marketing or endorsement of, you know, players think they need an electrolyte or they need, you know, something else in their in their mm. fluid where the, the case is, it's like, well, the big rock is, did you have breakfast today? Did you have two litres of water yesterday? Then we're already on to a winner there by just addressing those two. I was uh, in the company of two of my friends. One of them whipped out uh, a wee uh, sachet of electrolytes and mm. the other one goes, what's that there? And uh, first one goes, it's, it's electrolytes. As I put, um, what, so what are you doing with this? Yeah, you put it into water, it helps you hydrate. But he's like, but does water not not hydrate you? <laughs> <laughs> it was a kind of funny kind of moment there because yeah. like it was kind of ironic of putting. Yeah, uh, I know obviously the electrolytes have have their place as well. But yeah. uh, here, I was thinking about this before. I think in a few years' time, or maybe we'll start it now. But like, see of all the different recovery modalities. Yeah, reading. Yeah, you're sitting down reading the book. Your mind 
is focused on something different. Yeah. You're yeah. sitting there relaxing and all the flipping, the relaxation hormones and recovery is yeah. like happening there. I think, I think in a couple of years time, people are going to be like doing planned uh, reading sessions for recovery. It is, it is funny. And I remember... Uh, Aidan O'Connell months recently talked about it one time was this even the Angelus in the sense that like it was a mindfulness experience you know back in the day when your family sat down and didn't think of anything but just said the Angelus and it's just like when you think about now like we're actually trying to retrain that by by asking athletes to maybe do mindfulness or yoga or something like that when those basic things were were hugely beneficial to the mind and body that were there in the past like even going to mass and things like that back in the day was a form of meditation, you know, a form of mindfulness um, where you were literally just distracting yourself from from your own thoughts and, and getting, you know, doing something like relaxing, like reading, you know, and it definitely, definitely has a place of a, a work in, you know, in terms of an opposite to a workout, you know, I think that there needs to be components <coughs> of that. That I'm doing a halfway through a mindfulness mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course in Oxford University and since I've started doing that course and practicing and it's something that that it's been in in and out I would have to say of my life over the last 10 or so years like the important thing is that there's sometimes a lot more to be gained by doing nothing yeah. and doing more stuff and it, the the benefit of the training doesn't happen we've spoken about this, about this four years ago the benefit of the training doesn't happen during the training session it happens yeah. in between training sessions yeah. when you're not training yeah which is where the recovery process happens yeah yeah and i think it's that's a, an integral part of that is being able to do nothing sometimes and clear your head like clear your body of activity and clear your and mind that's of, that's of hard these days like yeah if there's just constant bombardment i mean especially if players are Way more exposed to yeah. the uh, the media and stuff like that there yeah. uh, than they would have been a lot, uh, say, a number of years ago. Yeah. What, what are the other big blocks, Joe, that you would see that, or sorry, the other small things that we're focusing on um, that we're focusing on at the expense of the bigger things? It's probably like, you know, um, probably just too many messages, I think, going to players during a week two is always a difficult one um you know if everyone wants like a lot of coaches or a lot of people you know want a piece of their pie you know it's like it's like being in school and every teacher giving out about your teachers who always give heaps of homework and don't realize that all the other teachers have given you homework as well you know so i think it's it's sometimes it's, it's filtering the amount of information that we give our players i think sometimes we think you know you know we're really good i heard i heard it somebody told me about a, a coaching conference we're at one year and um, it was an international rugby coaching conference and they asked, they showed um, all the international coaches a video at the course and the, the video was like, I think it was the New Zealand 120s team or whatever winning the final um, and the coaches were given a task, a round table task to come up with five strategies to beat in this team and you're talking about a room full of international coaches here, put down their five strategies and what they would do to beat this team, they wrote it up on a whiteboard or a flip chart, and they went through it, and then they went for lunch, and then when they came back, they were, the flip charts were lifted off the tables, and they were asked to rewrite the five points that they'd originally come up with before lunch in, to beat that team. No table could put the five points back onto the whiteboard that they had discussed before lunch, and that was just an hour before that. So like, if that's the elite level coach that can't regurgitate those five points, you know, and that one coach gives his player five messages, I come along, 
uh, give the player five rehab exercises. The nutritionist comes along, gives the player five things to work on. The physio gives them five stretches to do. All of a sudden, this is beginning to pile up and we're overloading this player you know, with information as well. So like, you can't put you know more than one saddle on a horse at any one time. You need just one key message and that might, depending on the player you have, that might be, that key message might need to be every day for the next year or it might be a, si- a situation where you start seeing that becoming a, a natural behaviour or a natural you know, um, trait in that player's day-to-day activity or game, then you can move on to another point. But I think we do need to realise less is more, you know, and yeah. I suppose that's something we don't respect enough. There's that book, uh, The One Thing, is kind of like, a, I can't remember who wrote it now, but it's basically what you're saying there. It's just yeah. like, you can only process one thing at a time. Yeah. And actually, multitasking is a thing that just isn't possible <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you spoke about it there, but like, even like, you know, um, the sleep. And like, if you were working with a client and trying to get them to lose weight, and no matter what you did, if that simple one thing wasn't fixed, that they weren't getting enough recovery, or they weren't getting enough fluid, or they weren't getting, uh, you know... Um, you know, a few square meals a day. Then, no matter what you do, it's 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 not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's it's getting to the primary goal is is the difficult part, and you know, trimming away the fat around that. In in a slightly uh, uh, outside context, I heard a story the other day about a GA team who are a club team who are kind of in an intermediate level using GPS units during their training sessions, and I would say that that's probably one of the things that is uh, sort of like bringing up a lot of too much information and yeah. looking at the smaller things when you're like more than likely missing some of the, some of the bigger things as well. Yeah. I suppose context is everything, you know, and, and it depends if 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 or not that team is ready for that. And there might be like if you're if you're considering it's an intermediate team that is maybe, you know, you know, over the last couple of years progressed from junior to intermediate has been quite successful, you know, they have the support network, they have the player body, then yeah, fine, but is that the lowest hanging fruit for that team to pick up on? That's the real question. You yes. know what I mean? So like if, if you're working with a team, you know, and you know, you've, you know, there's a more obvious things to pick on, like solidifying a game plan, building a relationship between the fitness coach and the head coach, um, like all the data in the world might be great for the person collecting the data, but like, is he in a position and is he effectively, you know, translating that data to the coach and to the players? If he is, more power to him you know but if he's not then he might just be you know in his own silo there working away and i guess it's kind of related to to that as well but i would see that the especially in ga like the driving that a lot of players are doing is Mm. having a massive impact on the training and i would see that that is one of the the lowest hanging fruits that uh, that players especially inter-county players who are working during the day traveling in the evening to go training and then traveling back again yeah and then going back to work the next morning that seems to be a low-hanging fruit that I would say that within the GA culture should be addressed for player welfare. Uh, absolutely, and like you know, it is it, it is a seriously tough one. Like when you look at it, like you know, and guys, especially in in the west of Ireland, you know, with a lot of the a lot of the work and and livelihoods or students maybe based in the east over in, in Dublin and that and commuting back, like you just question the 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 logic of a lot of that. You know, not the logic; it, it has to be done. But like you know, are we accounting for the stress? that's imposing that and how best can we minimalize that sort of fatigue on players uh, uh, and that's probably as much cognitive fatigue mental fatigue as it is physical as well you know and i suppose that's 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 oh that's the tough aspect and you have to admire 
you know, the GA players that commit to that, you know, um, like if you're thinking of guys that are working in Dublin and maybe going home to train in Donegal, like it's six, seven hour round trip and, you know, geez, that's a tough, that's a tough slog, you know, and yeah, there's, that's probably the biggest low hanging fruit that we could address. So how do we best minimalize that? Um, yeah, like that's, that is, that is the tough one. Like, like we're bringing things back to basics here and when I'm kind of listening to us talking here, it sounds like we're, I mean, it sounds like we're like, we're like really old coaches looking back, oh, the young people these days, you know, yeah. don't know how to do it. And I suppose like we have been on the road for a while. Um, like I'm 33, been coaching since I was just around 20 or 31. Yeah, so we have got quite a few years of coaching under our belt between us. But I would say on the other side of that, that I think we are moving into the era of player welfare, of looking at a more holistic approach to training, strength and nutrition, recovery, sleep. And that... I think we're we're in many respects we are going in the right direction. Yeah. Um, but I think the big danger or the big sort of elephant in the room is that what you mentioned earlier, like the advertising and that and that we that we keep the ship on course. Yeah. For where we're going, for where where players are being better looked after, and that um, the the increase in demands of professional and even amateur sport in the GA yeah. are able to be managed by the players in a healthy way. Mm. Yeah. I suppose what the players are exposed to, like that, just. And even the coaches, what coaches are exposed to are expected to, you know, the standard that, you know, coaches maybe are trying to reach with GPS and things like that. At the end of the day, like, you know, we're at this, we're at this a long time and I suppose we have a career trajectory and a career path. But if I was to go back and think of, I was a young coach coming out, like I would want as much exposure, like, you know, if I was an intermediate team, like for me, like a dream would be get my hands on GPS so that when another job interview comes up, I can say that that's a string to my bow you know what I mean so there is a race on for I suppose the players to get the one percenters but there's also a race on for the coaches out there the up and coming coaches you know to get as much experience as possible and we were recently advertising for um, intern positions too and you're looking at some of the stuff coming in and like players saying they've done this course done this course done this course and then you're reading between the lines going Who's this, co- who's this coach actually coaching? You know, at the end of the day, like they're getting so much experience at conferences and books and, you know, um, you know, research themselves and, you know, PhD candidates and things like that. And you're just like, well, I kind of just want a coach, <laughs> you know, someone who, who has good, you know, you know, customer service, you know, uh, experience, uh, good coaching ability, you know. Uh, so at the end of the day, like that's, that's priority, you know, as well for a coach, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to discuss as well. Like I would say that for for young coaches, one of the most important things are what you mentioned are like getting someone to coach, work mm. with them, yeah, get time on and trial and error, you know, yeah. and like and make the mistakes, you know, um, like a coach should be able to like reflect on the mistakes he's made and and learn from it. And let's face it, we're going to make plenty of mistakes. Like you know, and look, it's not it's not a big deal either. We're not we're not surgeons. We're not pilots. You know, we're going to be able to. You know, we have to be able to, you know, throw ourselves into a program, you know, do the program, analyze our own results, successes or failures, you know, and, and get to that point where, you know, we're, we're reflecting on our, our program design, building our experience, our coaching hours, etc. Yeah. What you mentioned earlier was knowing when to call upon other members of the backroom team or other sort of professionals when Mm. the time is right I think that's a big aspect of it as well I think that probably comes down to coaches like we've already discussed taking the time to establish a coaching philosophy or looking at another coach that they that they respect and adopting 
their coaching philosophy until they can grow into one of their own. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And you, you can no matter who you're working with, like it's not time wasted. Whether it's a good good internship you've done or mentorship, like if it's good or bad, you've learned either way. You know. So if you've if you've gone working with another coach and you've maybe summarized at the end that's a really good coach, you've learned loads. Brilliant. If you've learned that that's a, a bad coach you've worked under you know you've learned what not to do as well you know so it's that it's just getting that time under your belt is key if, if you had coaches in in the past or currently that that you look up to and and kind of take things from oh every day yeah absolutely every every coach you work with like i have the, the pleasure of working with like under charlie higgins here in leinster who's is a massive mentor to me now um in terms of coaching in terms of leadership in terms of management and i suppose we, at the end of the day I suppose when the student is ready the master will appear you know what I mean so when a, when a coach is aware of where he lacks something then he'll be in a position to learn that like you know so when we come out you know I suppose giving advice to any young coach coming out is you know just just get coaching just get in with other coaches you know no matter who they are no matter what the sport is um, but start I'd recommend everyone starts like everyone wants to do an, an internship with a elite team or that i'd start with kids because if you can coach a kid or you can explain something to a kid mm-hmm. you'll explain that to anyone that's what know? i was saying that earlier like the coaching kids is what what brought me yeah. on in the the greatest amount in yeah. any one time because of the fact you have to be so precise so clear yeah um and yeah. you'll you'll learn to coach because in order to get them to do what you want or to understand, like you have to be very clear with your instructions, your word choice, you know, the image you're trying to create or this, you know, the simile or the picture you're trying to portray to them. Like, you know, the other the other aspect even I've I've learned from my own career was working in, in pubs and nightclubs and I used to work as a as a door supervisor and like if anyone's seen me, they know I'm not in a position to physically handle myself. But like if you're a last man standing being a night porter in a hotel and like there's still a stag party uh, that you need to discuss and close the bar with. You'll soon learn patience, you know, uh, you know, empathy, <laughs> things like that. Those are traits you'll pick up, you know. So coaching kids, I think, um, you know, having experience in customer service, having experience with coaching kids, I think, are are the foundations to to, to good coaching, you know. T- talk to me a little bit about the the mental, moral, and physical aspects that you've mentioned, Joe. Yeah, so that was a line I heard from again, uh, Aidan O'Connell was. The monster S or is the monster S and C is a is a great 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 line he used one time was like you know condition an athlete it's physical mental and moral so I suppose what I mean by that is that like the physical aspect of what we do is the most obvious one right in the program the mental conditioning could be and the moral conditioning is like it's all well and good developing an athlete especially in a team sport if you develop an athlete. But if you haven't prepared that athlete for what the senior coaches are going to look for, what the senior schedule is going to look for, you know, what the, um, you know, what is, what's he going to be exposed to if this player gets a development contract? What's he going to, or what are you, what's going to get him a development contract? You know, does he have the ability to, you know, to, to talk to the senior coaches trick? take critical feedback, um, constructive feedback, you know, positive and negative um, you know, liaise with other players above him and below below him in the pecking order. So can he mentor younger players? Can he seek advice off older players? These are all traits that like, you know, coaches pick up on, you know, and, and I think, you know, you, I come across a lot of coaches and, and, and more often than not, like the first thing they're looking for is a good person and then a good player, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll always, 
you know, a, a coach will always prefer a really good player for the team rather than just a really good player. You know, so we'd be doing our, our players an injustice if we weren't preparing them for that demand of the club game or the, the team that they're going into as well. You know, so we there's a there's an onus on us to reflect down to the younger athletes that we're looking with looking after you know the um the culture and the values of the club that the senior side you know and if we don't start reflecting those values and traits down how are the younger players going to pick up on it you know and you're setting them up for failure if we don't do that and I think it's, it's a very important role for, for anyone in the backroom staff with a player, whether you're the kit man, physio, um, doctor, it doesn't matter. I think you have, a, you have an onus to, um, to, uh, to, uh, to feed, that, feed that culture as well. And I suppose a saying would be like, if the, ship, if the tide rises, all ships rise. So if you, can, if you can start rising that culture within your academy or age grade squads, then th- those players are going to rise that, to that standard then by the time they graduate. You know, so that yeah, that'd be my theory on that. Beautiful. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> Leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's as good a note we're going to get. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing the podcast again. Absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been a class catching up. Actually, this is a, for anyone listening the first time we've caught up. I'd say properly and well over yeah, a year yeah, anyway. Yeah, that. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure. We'll do it again. Happy soon. days. This time next year. <laughs> <laughs> good man. <laughs> Hope you about you. Gormila Mygat for sticking it out this long and for listening to this episode and especially thank you, thank you very much to Joe McGinley for taking the time out of his day to sit down and record that episode with me up in Dublin. We've got a lot of cracker episodes coming up in the next few weeks so stay tuned to the Rebel Matters podcast and share it around with your mates. As usual give us a wee rating and review wherever you're listening to it on iTunes or Google or whatever. They uh, really helps to um, keep the show on the road and I like to know that there's someone out there listening to it and as well as that get in touch if you fancy it i've got anla.ie set up which is the home for the rebel matters podcast you can get in touch with me through there or just leave a comment on some of the social media and uh, i'll get back to you coming up in the next few weeks on the rebel matters podcast we have got an episode with the chair of the ireland palestine solidarity committee fatan al tamimi who i recorded an episode with up in the ipcsc offices in dublin we've got shana brantnock who was a good friend of bobby sands on the podcast as well and plenty more really interesting conversations and guests coming up so stay tuned and thanks very much for being with us so far it is an absolute pleasure and i'm very glad that the rebel matters podcast is on the road going to be coming out every Friday night for as long as I can keep it going and which is hopefully going to be every week and I'm going to do everything I can to keep the keep the episodes coming nice and consistently so can you fear be nice to each other that's the main thing if you can reach out to someone who seems to maybe might need a bit of a helping hand at a given time then do that and if you see the opportunity to help someone out then just go for it